0: And for all of you joining us online today, thank you for staying connected to us. Um, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. We're working through this, a sermon series right now called Anchoring in the Storm. It goes along with the book that I've provided for you, and I know there are shepherds in this church who are going through the book with their shepherding groups, and there are uh, some of you doing this as discipleship groups, and some of you are just using it as a devotional guide, and today I want to talk about Noah and the flood. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5, that's where we're going to be today, talking about what it means to obey in a storm, what it means to be obedient when the flood's and the waves of life just keep coming after us. Now, before we dive deep into that, can I just get a, a shout out to ACU for taking down the Longhorns last night. Uh, I mean, we, we got to be loyal Church of Christ people in the house today, right? Uh, and, and to think that Church of Christ people couldn't be a part of a big dance, but now they are, right? Uh, ACU has defied the odds, and finally it's, it's happening. Uh, so, so excited about that, and, and i I want to believe that the reason there's overflow crowd in the house today is because of the funnel cakes that are being provided after church, and there's still the debate whether funnel cake is a dessert or a, an appetizer, and I'm going with appetizer. For those of us who gave up desserts for Lent, we need a reason to eat some funnel cakes. So all I'm asking is for two or three people to agree with me today. And Matthew chapter 18 says, when two or three agree on something that we declare this in the name of the Lord. But hey, I'm so glad, I'm so glad you're here today. I want to talk about obedience, because obedience is something that is really hard, especially when you find yourself in the midst of storms, when you're, when you're stressed in life, when there's anxiety, it's hard to focus on obedience. And sometimes when it comes to obedience, there's selective obedience. Sometimes there's delayed obedience. Yet God, throughout all of Scripture, is asking for obedience. Now, a lot of us who grew up in church, if you've been at church much in your life at all, you've probably heard people talk about obeying the gospel. Sometimes obe- obedience was talked about in that way. What does it mean to obey the gospel? And this is something that, that is uh, in First Peter. Peter talks about obeying the gospel in 1 Peter 4:17 and In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it talks about obeying the gospel. And usually when churches have talked about obeying the gospel, it's about God is inviting you into salvation, and we obey the gospel by responding, to God's invitation. So we obey the gospel by confessing with our mouth of Jesus being the Lord of our lives, of repenting of the sins, wanting to go in a new direction, of being immersed into God, of being baptized into God. And, and, and for some of you, you may need to hear an invitation into obeying the gospel right now in your life. Maybe you have yet to obey and to respond to the invitation of God. And if so, Easter's coming up in two weeks. And I think Easter is a great Sunday for people to circle on their calendar who are in need of making decisions in their life, either for salvation or for deeper faith. And sometimes it's marking something on your calendar that gives you something to work toward. But how I want to talk about obedience today is that obedience, when it comes to the church, it's got to be more than just obeying the gospel, as important as that is. It's it's obeying God. It's obeying God's heart. It's obeying God's character and God's nature. And this whole idea of anchoring in the storm is so important when it comes to obedience. Especially when we face storms like we have over the last year and obedience can be hard. We have to make sure we're anchoring in the right place. That we're anchoring strong. That we're anchoring well. And you can't anchor well in your faith by holding on to faith in your right hand yet anything else in your left hand. You can't anchor to faith and anchor to God with one hand while anchoring to financial security or needs in one hand, or anchoring to God in one hand while also anchoring to a political party in another hand, or anchoring to God in one hand while anchoring to even good things, whether it's a marriage or a parent or a child, a job, anything else. It takes both of your hands clinging to the anchor of God, clinging to the anchor of your faith. Now, before we go deeper into Genesis 5, let's, I, I just want to see how much we're on the same page today. And I'm just asking for people in the house, I want you to raise your hand for those online. You can raise your hand where you are, or you can use a chat just to maybe answer a few of these. How many of you would agree that it is hard to eat healthy while you live in the South? Right? How many of you would agree that funnel cakes can be an appetizer? I just need a couple. Thank you in the name of of Jesus. Thank you so much. Uh, More serious. How many of you can identify a moment in your life that you deeply regret, right? How many of you have struggled with shame at some point in your life? How many of you over the last year of your life have felt yourself being more cynical than ever before? How many of you in the last year of your life have found yourself judging other people because of their politics? <laughs> right. How many of you can identify a time in your life when you felt that the floods of life were, were like you were about to be taken down by the floods? Anybody? This whole Noah story. This is a story, Noah in the flood, that Christians know. And a lot of people who have never read the Bible know the story about Noah Noah in the flood, Noah in the rain, Noah in the storm. And I was uh, reading, and I wasn't even reading this past week for uh, this one particular moment for sermon prep. I was reading for my own edification and just time with God. And I came across in Psalm chapter 29, verse 10, and this has been an anthem for me the last few days of my life, and maybe it needs to be an anthem for you too. It says this, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord has enthroned his king forever. And to know that as the floods of life come, that God is he's able to hover over them in a, in a place of victory. God has conquered the floods that you face in life. Now let's talk about this whole Noah story, and let's start with who Noah is. Because we're given a few descriptions of Noah. When Noah was born... Here's what his dad said about him. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, his dad said this. He named him Noah, and he said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. In some of your versions, it said Noah, from birth, his dad said, Noah's going to help bring relief to people. Like the thought of this mission being upon him at a, at a very young age. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is often called the Hall of Fame of Faith, where all these characters of the Bible are honored for their great faith, or maybe it wasn't even great faith, maybe just some form of faith. Noah gets a verse in there where in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah has a place in Hebrews 11. Later on in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 and 9, we read this about Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. That Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people. And he walked faithfully with God. He was known as righteous, blameless, walked faithfully with God, which throughout, especially the Old Testament, when someone, when they're talking about mature faith and mighty leaders for the Lord, a lot of times the description that is given to them is they are people who walk with the Lord. They walk with God. Now, the description that Noah was given in birth about his mission, and then these three verses right here in Genesis chapter 6, this is why Casey and I called our youngest son Noah. Like We love the idea of Noah having a mission in his life from birth. And we love that what we want for our child is nothing less than being known as somebody who is righteous, blameless, and throughout the rest of his life will walk with God. This is what we wanted for him. Now, I think I've told you before, his middle name is James. And, this, and the reason why is because Casey's two favorite books in the Bible are James and Ephesians. It had been for years, and we just figured that our son would probably appreciate being named Noah James more than he would appreciate being named Noah Ephesians for the rest of his life. Am I right, Noah? Am I right just a little bit? Yeah, Noah James sounds right, doesn't it? So we were told a few things about Noah, how righteous this guy was. Now, why was there a flood? And this whole flood, we're, we're told why. In Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6, it says this, "...the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled." And then you're told this in verse 11, "...now the earth was corrupting God's sight and was full of violence." God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to to destroy both them and the earth. Now, let me talk about this just for a moment, because you are told multiple times in Genesis chapter 6, the one of the primary reasons God brings the flood is because evil was all over the earth, and not just only evil. You were told specifically multiple times that there was violence that had taken over so much violence. And whenever I see violence happening in the world, when, I, when you read about the history of the world and some wars that have been fought and, and blood has been shed and, and lynchings or even in the past week with Asian Americans and you hear these stories of violence, a lot of times I go back and I think that this is one of the catalysts that prompted God to do something, that there was violence everywhere. Now, when you read the story of Noah and the flood, Uh, There are a few things that are just really interesting about this story to me. One is you don't know, we don't know if rain was something that the earth had experienced up to this point. All we're told in Genesis before this is that there was mist that would come up from the ground to water the earth. We don't know if God had already brought rain or not. And if if rain had happened and there were lakes and rivers and streams which we assume there were, we don't know if boats or ships were a thing yet which brings even a little more irony and humor to thought to think that people already thought noah was crazy for building a boat but now to build a boat in a time when maybe there were no such thing as boats like people already thought noah was nuts like now it's like this dude is truly off of his rocker now when it comes to this whole thing of violence I know I've asked some of these questions before, maybe you have too. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of strange, and it makes you ask. Like, so what happens in the story is God uses violence because God was upset with violence. So this whole story brings up the questions of how do we process the anger of God, the wrath of God, the punishment of God? Like, how do you think about that? Because one way to think about the story of Noah and the flood is it's a story about destruction. Or some people like to think about the story of Noah and the flood as a story about purification. That God's purifying the world. Like anytime there's evil, God wants to transform it and somehow do away with it to bring good into the world. Now let me speak into this just for a moment. Because I know, especially here at this church, we want to press hard into the love of God as the ultimate motivator in life. Like, we are motivated to act as followers of Jesus out of love because of God's love. And as we talk about and want to press deep into the love of God, we can't ignore the anger of God that shows up throughout Scripture. But we have to be really careful how we talk about this. In Psalm chapter th- or Exodus chapter 34, God gives a description to himself. And one thing God says, as God describes himself, in Exodus 34 verse 6, God says, I am slow to anger. And that is something that's repeated throughout the Bible about God, that God is slow to anger. Now this is hard for some of us to grasp, and I'm not pointing my fingers at anyone, but some of you, it's hard for you to grasp how God can be slow to anger because you are not slow to anger. But God's not on the edge of his seat waiting for someone to mess up because God's just ticked off at the world. In Psalm chapter 30, verse 5 and 6, what David says, David says is that the anger of God lasts for only a moment. This is David, the man after God's own heart. David, who is a recipient of the wrath, anger, and punishment of God in his own life. And he is on the record saying, God, there is anger that can come from God, but when anger comes from God, it's only going to last a moment. Because David believed that God is one who is slow to anger. So, anger is a part of God. But as you read throughout the Bible, the Bible does not use anger to describe like this is the primary emotion of God or this is what God is like. But there is anger and there's punishment and there's wrath because God cares about setting the world right. About purifying the world. Now, I think this is important to bring up because I think some of you grew up in churches or grew up with some mindset that for you, anger was the primary emotion of God. So the reason you were called to be obedient is that you were called to be obedient before God so that you don't frustrate and upset God, which is never a good way to live and it's never a good way to mature into a follower of Christ like fear is not a good motivator when it comes to spiritual formation, or the fear of just upsetting God. This is not a motivator when it comes to spiritual formation or deeper life. Like we are, uh, we stand in awe of God, but we don't live every day of our lives fearful of God, throwing arrows anytime we do something wrong. This isn't what our God is described as in this story. You have this flood that comes, and then you have these, these moments that talk about Noah's obedience. And it seems to be this theme that comes up, if you go to that next slide, where Noah in obedience. Where in Genesis six twenty two, it talks about Noah did everything, just as God commanded him. In Genesis 7, verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. In seven sixteen, the animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God commanded Noah. That all these commands came at Noah from the right way to build an ark, to who to put on the ark. All these commands came at him, and Noah obeyed. He obeyed even when it went against the grain. He obeyed even when it didn't make sense to everyone else around him. Even when everyone else thought he was totally out of his mind, he still obeyed. Now, a moment in my life when God taught me about radical obedience, like radical obedience, like obeying God, even when you look like a fool in the eyes of the world. It's a story I shared. I know I've shared it a couple of times in the life of this church, but it was one of the most pivotal moments in just learning about obedience. It was early on in our marriage. Casey and I had only been married a few years, and I just hit a point. And I was in a season of the year where my spiritual, I was just off with God. I I was a full-time minister. I was a full-time student getting my master's degree. I was uh, just weary in life. And this My connection to God, it was just off. And I remember one day Casey was at work, and it was in the afternoon, and I was in the living room of my house, just on my knees, asking God, telling God, look, I, God, I'm owning this. Like, this is on me, but I need you to awaken my soul. Like, God, what do you want of me? And in that prayer time, I sensed that the Lord told me, I want you to go do laundry in a laundromat today. And it was the weirdest thing, because I, I, For one, we had a washer and dryer in our house, so why would God say this? And I don't know if you've ever had a moment in prayer with God when you sense that God may be saying something to you, but then you begin struggling with, is this really God or is this my mind playing tricks on me? And I stayed in the moment and I just sensed this overwhelming sense of God, like I want you to take your clothes and I want you to go do laundry in the laundromat. Now, Casey and I, our first year of our marriage, we didn't have a washer or dryer, so we, we spent a lot of time in laundromats. And if you've ever done laundry and one, you know you're there for hours because you can wash your clothes in 30 or 40 minutes, but you have to dry them over and over and over again. And then we had somebody who sold us a washer for 25 bucks, So we had a washer for the next uh, six months of our marriage, but we didn't have a dryer, so we would wash our clothes. Then we had to put wet clothes in a basket and go to a laundromat. And now we had washer and a dryer in our house. And I didn't do laundry at the time. I do our laundry now, but at that time I didn't. So for the Lord to command or to ask this of me, I didn't know if there was something God had in store for me or if this was just a call to obedience. So I, I, I did it. I got laundry. I put it in baskets. I was walking out to my car when Casey came home from work. She saw me putting laundry baskets in a car. She asked what I was doing. I told her about my encounter with God I think at first she thought I may be sick. I think she even touched my forehead to see if I was running fever. Like, you know we have, like God knows we have a washer and dryer here. But Casey went ahead and blessed my time. I went to a laundry mat, and when I walked in, I didn't know if I was there just to pray to the Lord, to be with God. I didn't know if I needed to read my Bible, or I didn't know if there were people there that the Lord wanted me to minister to. So I walked in. I started doing my laundry. There were two other women who were there. They weren't together. They were in separate places in that laundry mat. And I thought, well, maybe I need to have conversations with them because maybe that's why I'm here. So I tried to engage them in conversations, and that's when I discovered that women who are doing laundry alone in a laundromat don't want strange men to come and talk to them because there's a good chance women are folding clothes that they do not want you to see. So I went and I sat back in a chair and I was like, God, why am I here? Am I here just out of obedience or is there someone I need to minister to? If this is an act of obedience that I am learning to obey you no matter what, even if it doesn't make sense to anyone else, then maybe God, that's the lesson I need to learn. And I looked out the window and when I did, I saw another car coming to the parking lot and it was a woman in our church where I was preaching. And this was a woman who was going through a divorce who had a sister whose life was spiraling out of control, who had a 19-year-old son who was a drug addict, had just gotten his girlfriend pregnant, and this is the woman who now is walking into the laundromat with her laundry. And she walked in and she saw me and she came over and we started doing our our laundry together and in between loads we would sit down in a chair and we just were talking about faith in the Bible and God and pain and where is God through all this and I was trying to help her not make sense of everything in her life but trying to help her know who God is no matter what we're going through in our life and I was able to minister to her and thanks be to God her son ended up surrendering his life to God and to Jesus in baptism just a few weeks later. And I remember I got in my car that day and thought, God, this is a moment I'm going to remember for the rest of my life that when I sense a prompting from you that it's an invitation into radical obedience that may not make sense to anyone else. And there are moments in my life where uh, people, and not, not so much in this church, where people have questioned how expressive I am in worship sometimes, that I may clap and I may sway and I may look like I'm dancing or raise my hands. And what I have to tell people is I don't worship. I worship with you, but I don't worship for you. And when I worship, I'm not worshiping to please you. I'm worshiping out of obedience to God. And when I am worshiping and I'm thinking about what God has done in my life and the testimonies of people around me, often the people I'm worshiping with, sometimes I can't help but express myself in some ways. And, and I really don't care what a teenager or a peer or an 85-year-old may think of me. I'm, I'm acting out of obedience to God. When Casey and I chose to leave Texas 13 years ago and move to Memphis, do you know how many Texans thought we were out of our minds? Cuz Texans are crazy about their state, like they have the biggest egos out of anybody, probably in the world. Like they thought we were nuts, like one, why would you want to leave Texas but why would you want to leave Texas for for Memphis? Why not like New York City or something like that? And And then a decade ago, when Casey and I moved down in Binghampton, like there's so many things in our lives that the only way we can describe them is that there are moments where we're just trying to act out of obedience. Now the thing is, God is calling all of us to radical obedience. And how you live out radical obedience may not be the same as I live out radical obedience, but all of us are invited by God, commanded by God to live certain kind of lives that are responding to God. And here's the thing, and I have to check myself on this. If my act of obedience to God is only blessing my life, it's probably not radical obedience to God. Because obedience to God isn't just something that blesses your life. It's meant to bless everyone else around you. It's meant to bless the world. My obedience to God needs to be forming my own life, but my obedience to God also needs to be blessing everyone else around me. This is how it works. And there have been a lot of moments over the last year of my life where uh, my prayer life has increased over the last year. And there are times I'm trying to pray and connect with God and walk with God. And there have been so many moments over the last year I'm like, God, are you not freaking out right now because I am? God, why are you not panicking? And there have been moments over the last year in my time with the Lord where I've since God say, how about this? How about this? You panic when I panic. How about you freak out when I freak out? And how about you try to move at my pace? Where we're going to live life faithfully. Where we're going to grieve with those who grieve. And we're going to press into hope with all the people who need to press into hope. How about you move at my pace? There's an invitation into obedience for all of us today. Now here's what I want you to hear about the flood. And I'm going to make one more move in this message. Is that God said after the flood. God made a promise that that was never going to happen again. Which is good news, that we don't have to worry when we give in to evil about God bringing a disastrous flood to the world. Now, the Noah and the flood isn't a story that's told a lot throughout the Bible. You don't have a lot of stories where they're retelling the story of Noah. Even in the New Testament, you have references to Noah, but you don't have a lot of teachings about Noah. But in 1 Peter, there is. And I struggled. As I was preparing to preach this sermon, whether I wanted to land a plane by talking about radical obedience or if I wanted to make just one more move to help you see how Peter talks about Noah, and I'm going to make one more move. When Peter talks about Noah... And Peter and 1 Peter, Peter, and we, we went through a lengthy study last fall of Peter, and, and Peter's writing to a lot of people, most likely in rural areas, who may not be suffering so much from physical persecution, but they were suffering from social and relational persecution. There was all kind of pressure on them. So you had Gentiles who were part of that church who had come out of paganism. So who knows what forms of immorality they have been a part of. And then you have Jews who've also come to know the Lord. So you have this mixture of people from all these walks of life who are being pressed by social situations and maybe losing jobs and, and their income is gone. And Peter's writing to people who are suffering in that kind of way. And here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, I don't know how to help explain some of that to you. But apparently Peter's referencing a moment where Jesus had a little time with those who had gone before him. And Peter's using the the story of Noah to do it. And then Peter says this. In that story of Noah, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when Peter references the Noah story he does it to make an appeal to what baptism means for you what Jesus did for you and to make an appeal for a clean clear conscience which some of you are in, you're in deep need of it today Now This made me think about, when I think about this clear conscience, how how Peter's making this connection. The fourth, fifth century, there were people known as the desert fathers. There There were fathers and mothers who escaped from society to go into the desert to be with God. And I'm not talking about days and weeks. Some of them, it was months and years of being with God. Now, here's what I think is important about this, and here's why I bring it up. Now, I don't know what you call your time with God, whether you call it solo time or quiet time or God time. I don't know what you call Sabbath or sabbatical. I don't know what you call your rest time with God. But for desert fathers and mothers, when they were going out in the desert with God, it wasn't the way they were thinking about it, it wasn't to go, it wasn't just their me time. It wasn't just chill time with God. For them, with they, in their mind, it was, I am going into the desert to wage war against what Satan is doing in my mind. Well, I'm going to wage war against what Satan is doing in my heart. So for them, it wasn't just go chill in the desert and hang out with God, it was, I am stepping into a battle where I have to confront all the ways the enemy is trying to gain a stronghold in my heart and all of the lies that the enemy is speaking into my mind. And the only way you can do that is by combating it with the truth of God. You combat it with the truth of God. So here's, here's what I love. God promises God's not going to bring a flood again to wipe out evil. But here's what God does over and over and over again. As God invites people to remember their baptism and to note it in their baptism, God is giving you a clean, clear conscience where God speaks truth over your past. And this is something God continues to do. And I want this to guide us into our time of communion this morning as we take the bread and the cup. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And then we're going to talk about what it means to clear our mind, to have a clean, clear conscience before God. As Peter talks about, this is an appeal that Jesus makes on our behalf. So as the praise team comes to this stage, will you just bow your heads and close your eyes? And God, for those in the room, especially those who are being held in bondage by shame, regret, guilt, I pray the power of your spirit over their mind. I pray, God, today that for this church, for all those listening here in Shelby County and beyond, that as your commands and your words come into our lives, that you will give us the courage to act in faith, and may radical obedience lead the way for us this week. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.